Palestinians hold a general strike today as fierce resistance continues to the increasingly brutal Israeli bombardment of Gaza and deadly repression of Palestinians elsewhere in historic Palestine. The right-wing Supreme Court is now poised to eviscerate the right of women to control their own bodies. We'll also talk about the criminal injustice system and another extreme and odious form of racism used to justify police murder and a left-wing victory in the recent Chilean elections. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's May 18th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, Register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian Becker on next Wednesday, May 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, the biggest story and the most incredibly important thing to talk about again this week remains Israelis' just ongoing brutal assault on Gaza. And, you know, of course, the roving mobs who are also attacking, assaulting and killing Palestinians throughout the rest of historic Palestine. And the Palestinian people are fighting back. That's the other important part of the story. Every time the Palestinians try to defend themselves, their neighborhood, their homes, their families. They are, of course, labeled as terrorists. And every act by the Palestinians of resistance is considered to be a violation of Israel's right to exist. And the American government officials who finance Israel's destruction of Gaza and occupation over Palestine to the tune of $10 million a day. Every day, these same politicians say, well, of course, we support Israel's right to defend itself. I've never heard one of them say the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. And the media coverage is so horrendous. I want to talk, and we want to talk about the media coverage, and we're going to go to that in a minute. But Let's just really quickly start with this general strike. I mean, it's on the front page of the New York Times. That shows, because they rarely talk about this, this shows that the U.S. imperialist ruling class is scared about the Palestinian resistance. It's scared that it's spreading. There are massive demonstrations all over the United States, 75 cities on Saturday, maybe 100 cities, big and small. And Walter, the resistance of the Palestinian people is in a way synonymous with Palestine. The Palestinians have been oppressed, repressed, suppressed, and they have also continued to endure and to fight back, to resist. And as a result, even though the Israeli Zionist settler project supported by Western imperialism has been designed to drive the Palestinians out of the area so that the greater Israeli fantasy expansionist dream can be realized, In spite of all of this, the Palestinian people keep fighting. Today's general strike isn't the first general strike. I mean, even before the Nakba, even before the catastrophe whereby hundreds of thousands of Palestinian people were driven from their homes in 1948, even before then, as the British colonial project was using emigration and settler colonialism as an extension of colonial influence, into historic Palestine and throughout the Middle East, the Palestinians engaged in general strikes. That was not an armed resistance. It was a worker strike. Today is May 8th, 2021. But there was the great general strike of 1936, 
against British colonialism. Just let's frame this struggle as what it is, a historic struggle, ongoing struggle against colonialism, even where most of the rest of the world is no longer under, quote, colonial domination, maybe neo-colonial domination, but not outright colonialism. That's what this struggle really is. Walter, 1936. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the great heroic struggles against colonialism of the 20th century. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's incredible how the Palestinian people have kept up this multi-generation struggle over the years, first against British colonialism, which took over Palestine following the end of World War I and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. And then under the rule of the Israeli apartheid regime, the Israeli colonial regime that waged war on the Palestinian people, as well as every single one of the neighboring countries that won its freedom from Western colonialism and served as this sort of watchdog for the United States and other imperialist powers in the region, attacking anybody, any political movement, any government that tried to assert its independence or implement any type of progressive policies. So yeah, I mean, I think this general strike today, which is being adhered to by pretty much every Palestinian, according to media reports, is part of that long tradition. And I think because of this heroism, because, you know, of course, the enemies of the Palestinian people are extremely powerful because of the heroism and endurance of this struggle, the Palestinian people's cause has been embraced by millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people all around the world. And that's why there's been such an outpouring of solidarity in the streets, not just in neighboring countries, but pretty much in every single country here in the United States. I mean, the demonstrations last weekend were absolutely massive. I mean, I thought it was so impressive how in multiple cities, tens of thousands of people showed up, many thousands of people in many, many, many other cities. And I think it's indicative of how consciousness in the United States, which is you know the main backer and armor of the Israeli regime, is beginning to shift and how this international pressure, much you know, similar to what happened with the end of the apartheid regime in South Africa, is beginning to also become a significant force, exerting pressure, making the Israeli government, putting the Israeli government in a less advantageous position and therefore allowing the Palestinian resistance inside of Palestine to make greater gains, to struggle in a more intense and effective way. So I think all of these different components of resistance to the Israeli criminal colonial enterprise, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about the direction that that's heading, even in the midst of such a horrific assault waged by the Israeli military. I mean, over 200 civilians have been killed, a significant portion of them, maybe around 30% of them children. But even in the face of all that, resistance continues. Esther, let's talk about something that's not inspiring. Let's talk about the U.S. media. It's awful. I mean, it's so gross and disgusting. And I don't even know how you can write these headlines and not be embarrassed. I don't know how you can be the author of articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and not be embarrassed because it's not as if we don't know what the real story is. Here's the New York Times from the other day. After years of quiet, Israeli-Palestinian conflict exploded. Why now? Subtitle, a little-noticed police action in Jerusalem last month was one of several incidents that led to the current crisis. Now, it's not quiet. I mean, the Palestinian people in Gaza, for instance, are being starved. The Palestinian people in the West Bank are being deprived of the ability to move around, you know, the fundamental right of mobility. The Palestinian people in Jerusalem are being evicted. This little notice police action in Jerusalem, this eviction by fascist settlers and by the state of Israel of Palestinians from their historic homes in Jerusalem, it's not little noticed. Every single Palestinian everywhere knows about it. Anyway, really gross media coverage in the U.S. And this New York Times story is not the only piece of gross media coverage. Right. And the way that this whole conflict is being covered reminds us of the importance of language and how language is so skewed and can be manipulated. You know, 
the corporate media, the administration, they like to use certain buzzwords that they know that the American people will latch on to. They like to use words like authoritarian to describe China or North Korea or Venezuela. And they like to use words like propaganda or disinformation as they spew disinformation about Russia in the 2016 election. So right away, you know, those of us who, you know, are thinking and understanding what's happening, we can see how language is being skewed. I was just thinking about this rapper, Low Key, and he has this piece called, you know, Free Palestine. But he has a part where he talks about, you know, we know who the terrorist is. Stop, you know, insulting my intelligence, right? And I keep thinking about that when I'm talking about the media and how they're covering Palestine. So when it comes to corporate media coverage, of these assaults, these current assaults on Palestine, you notice that the story always starts when Palestinians fight back, right? So if they are throwing rocks or if Hamas is firing rockets after hundreds of worshipers have been brutally assaulted inside the third holiest site in Islam, Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? So the rockets get covered, but not the assault on the mosque you know, not the evictions, this ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah. And as you mentioned, not everything that's been happening in the meantime, it's not as if nothing's been happening. It's just that corporate media hasn't covered it because they don't care about this genocide, this ongoing genocide, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. So they're not covering the blockade of Gaza, how if a farmer is trying to farm his land, he's shot. They can't farm their land. How people don't have access to electricity and maybe they have three to four hours of electricity a day. How Israel has bombed hospitals and schools and right now they've bombed the last COVID testing site. And it looks like they're systematically targeting doctors in Gaza. So all these things aren't covered because that's just what they want to consider to be normal life in Israel. And what that is, is racist and apartheid coverage in addition to the racist and apartheid system in Israel. Nicole, the, the one thing the media kind of was compelled to talk about, again, in pretty soft terms, but they couldn't quite ignore it, was that the Israeli government targeted this high-rise building, 14 stories or 12 stories high, the first floors were doctor's offices and lawyer's offices. Then there was residential offices. And then at the top, there was Associated Press and Al Jazeera and some other media. And the Israelis, in violation of the Geneva Convention, in violation of the United Nations Charter, in violation of all international law, in violation of all things that people would consider to be ethical or moral, deliberately targeted and destroyed completely destroyed this building, one of the best-known buildings in Gaza, most well-known buildings, and one of the biggest buildings, just destroyed it. And so there was kind of tepid concerns. There were concerns issued by the U.S. government about the targeting of media and concerns that the Israelis needed to explain what they were doing and concerns that both sides needed to act with restraint after the destruction of this building but can you imagine, can you imagine if the shoe was on the other foot? Can you imagine if any other government did this to a high-rise building, say, in New York City or Washington, a building that had doctors and lawyers' offices and residents and media? I mean, can you imagine? Anyway, let's talk about the destruction of that building. And we also have some audio clips. Just like Esther was saying, when you use the word terror, when you talk about terror, you can define that by an act like this. Israel gave press 15 minutes to get out of the building. They got out of the building successfully, but their cameras, their work, you know, their files, their footage, everything that people had had for years was in those buildings. Residents were in those buildings. I mean, demolishing a 12-story building with the very center of life, doctors, lawyers, people living there. I mean, these were apartment buildings. And of course, these were two of the main press outlets that are there in Gaza covering what's going on. Terror is the only word to describe what Israel did and what they are continuing to do. 15 minutes is, you know, enough time to get out and that's it. I want to play a clip from 
Democracy Now! from their broadcast yesterday on Monday. This is with reporter Yumna Al-Sayed. She has been reporting from the Gaza Strip for the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, which are the two press outlets that were in this building. So this first clip, she's describing just basically what happened when they bombed the press building. Um, while we were at the building on a normal day of work, our re- like reporting the aggression that is happening on the Gaza Strip, we suddenly got a call by the owner of the building saying that he was uh, called by the Israeli army and he's been asked to tell the residents of the building to immediately evacuate. In an hour, the building shall be targeted. So this was an emergency situation for us. Uh, everyone was, um, honestly, everyone was like uh, frightened of what is going on and what is going to happen. Usually when we get such calls of other buildings that we have seen, uh, there is, in 15 minutes, there is a targeting by a warning missile that is uh, close to the building or in an empty apartment in the building. And that is what we were afraid of. In exactly 15 minutes, our first, the first missile, warning missile, has uh, been targeted next to the building. It was really traumatizing for all of us running around on the stairs. So, you know, she's saying we had an hour to get out. They called us. We had an hour to get out. And then within 15 minutes on the dot, there was a quote unquote warning missile that hit directly next to the building. I mean, that's truly terrifying. And to your point, Brian, I mean, if we were called today or if the New York Times headquarters, you know, or the Washington Post headquarters right in downtown D.C. got a call that said this building is going to be demolished and, you know, you need to be out within an hour and in 15 minutes, you know, we are going to send a warning missile that's right by the building. You probably shouldn't be in the building in 15 minutes either. The last time anything even remotely close to that happened, the U.S. declared two wars. I'm going to play this second clip. It's from the same interview with Al Said, and she describes who lives and works in the building. The building is out of 12 stories, and the first five uh, floors for offices uh, that host uh, doctors' offices and lawyers' offices, Flatinia uh, uh, Labs, and the other six floors are residential uh, uh, apartments, and the last floor is the floor that hosts the Associated Press and opposite to it, Al Jazeera office. So basically, this building is one of the most famous buildings in the Strip. It is all the residents know each other. The doctor's offices are known. The lawyer's offices there are known. No stranger comes in or out of that building. You know, one of the important parts of this story is that the Israelis have been arguing the reason the Israeli Defense Forces targeted and destroyed this 12-story building was because Hamas was inside, that Hamas was a legitimate target. They were there. You know, this is the Israeli line all the time that Hamas is using human shields to hide itself. And so as a consequence, they are entitled to do this, that it's not a violation of the Geneva Convention, which of course, even if Hamas was there, it still would be. In fact, if one reads the Geneva Convention rules of or conduct of war. But that said, it's just not true. And later in that interview with Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman asks Yumna Al-Sayed, well, the Israelis say that Hamas was inside the building, but so far they haven't provided any evidence. And she says, well, they're not going to provide evidence. They're not going to provide evidence because there is no evidence. If they had evidence, they would have released it like right away, right? They would have released it in the next hour. They wouldn't have just asserted asserted that Hamas was there. They would have made some point to show that it was true. But Esther, they didn't do that because it's not true. And even other parts of the U.S. media are aware that it's just completely bogus. Right. So even on Sunday on CNN's Reliable Sources, that's a Sunday show focusing on the media. You know, the host, Brian Stelter, he pressed the Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson, a Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Kornrikis, about this. And I think we have a clip with some of that exchange. Can you show us the pictures, the intelligence you have? That's in process, and, I am, and I'm sure that in due time, that information will be presented. So but far, shouldn't that have happened 24 hours ago? Again, we've said very clearly what's in the building. And again, like the uh, opening statement said, let's have a more nuanced and comprehensive view at what's going on here. 
It's not as right, if this you was all knew Hamas was in the building and you're about to bomb a news bureau, you could have provided the evidence an hour or two later. Right. So there's definitely more pushback on the Israeli narrative from the news media right now. And it's ironic, actually, you know, because as we've been discussing, the corporate media here in the West has been very complicit in towing the Israeli line. So now even some reporters, maybe some editors are beginning to see that Israel is treating them just like Netanyahu or the Israeli government treated Biden when they said about a week ago that he should stay out of the issue in Jerusalem. I mean, people are kind of forgetting that. He kind of gave them the backhand, like, this isn't any of your business. So, you know, we're supplying as U.S. taxpayers billions of dollars to this government, this government committing war crimes, genocide against the Palestinian people. And Netanyahu, his government, feels the right to just say, you know, stay out of our business. Walter, I want to talk about money a little bit here because Esther is right. The Israeli government does this with the support of the United States government. And with the money provided from the United States government, U.S. taxpayers' money to fund Israeli war crimes. I mean, that's what's really going on. Yes, the missiles that destroyed that building, that 12-story building in Gaza, they were triggered by an Israeli soldier, but it was the United States that paid for the missile. It was the United States that pays for the Israeli military operations. Even Obama, when he was leaving the White House and after Benjamin Netanyahu had come to the U.S. Congress and spoke before both sessions of the U.S. Congress and trashed the sitting president of the United States' main diplomatic initiative at that time, which was to undertake negotiations with Iran to come up with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal, even after Netanyahu did that, which was amazing, before both houses of Congress, the invited guest, the head of state of Israel, a country that is a supplicant to the United States, or at least receives its money, Obama gave $30 billion in a 10-year military aid for Israel on top of the normal annual $5 billion a year. I mean, Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. military and economic aid around the world. So I want to talk about the money. At this moment, some parts of the Democratic Party are issuing tepid concerns about the Israeli aggression, a little bit of fraying at the edges. Bernie Sanders and AOC and some of the more liberal members of the Congress are saying things that they never said in the past. You never heard it. They were you know, straight out criticisms of Israel, not enough, but they were criticizing Israel. But the Republican Party is all about this. They're like, yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. What the Israelis are doing in Gaza is wonderful. We have to step up aid to Israel. At this moment, at this very moment, in the middle of a situation where tens of millions of Americans lost jobs, including in these so-called red states, 20 GOP-led states are cutting or have cut the $300 weekly federal unemployment benefits for those who are unemployed in their state. So the federal government, through the last relief or rescue package, allowed the supplemental unemployment benefits to continue $300 a week above what you would normally get in unemployment. These Republicans are saying to the workers in their own states, to the unemployed in their own states, that's too much. We don't have money for you. And at the same time, full-throated endorsement for what Israel's doing and sending $5 billion, $10 million a day or more actually to the state of Israel as it wages war, illegal war against Palestinian people. Well, it just tells you everything you need to know about the right wing in the United States. I mean, when it comes to things that cause death and destruction and devastation, bombs, missiles, tanks, fighter jets, there's all the money in the world for that. But when it comes to providing relief for unemployed workers who are suffering amidst the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, record enormous numbers of people filing for unemployment benefits every week, every month. That's like, you know, whatever. That's just people should stop being lazy in the eyes of the right wing. Yeah, I mean, it just shows everything about the twisted priorities of the U.S. government, especially the right wing political factions of the ruling elite in this country. 
there's never a word of criticism of Israel from the Republican Party, from most sectors of the Democratic Party. But unemployed people here in the United States are not above criticism and reproach and even downright slander, because that's really what the Republicans are saying, like, oh, unemployed people don't have a job because they're lazy. Well, that's that's ridiculous. That's nonsense. I mean, there's so many other reasons. The other part of it, Walter, that I think is important to bring out is that the reason these Republicans want to take away unemployment benefits is they want to drive the poor back into jobs where they're getting like $7.25 an hour or $8.25 in the case of West Virginia. The poor, the super oppressed parts of this population don't want to go to work in minimum wage jobs in the minimum wage is... 40% lower than it was in 1968 when Dr. King organized the Poor People's Campaign, 40% lower than 1968. I mean, real poverty wages and the capitalists in those states, they want these people to have no choice. And so really what this exposes in a way is the class character of the government. And I think this is really important for U.S. workers. If you think, oh, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, if you're thinking about the government that way, instead of thinking about it like, this is a capitalist government and I'm a worker. And as a worker, I might be unemployed. And this capitalist government cares more about the empire, meaning the global interests of America's corporate and banking elites and their global interests all around the world, especially in the resource-rich Middle East, than they do about me or they do about my family or my neighborhood. I mean, American imperialism's wars in Vietnam and Korea and Afghanistan, Iraq, Panama, you name it, these are rich man's war. I mean, the, the poor fight the wars, but it's really for the rich. What you're saying is right. And I don't think that Americans are as unaware as these politicians seem to think that we are. Because at the same time, when these governors are cutting these benefits, right now you have people like Representative Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian woman in Congress, you know, talking about how right at this moment, as Israel is bombing Gaza and Palestinians are being attacked, there is $735 million worth of munitions slated to go to Israel. Like Biden made this proposal on May 5th, right before this recent assault on the Palestinian people. And so right now, there are lawmakers trying to draw people's attention to this and denouncing this sale that's happening right now, you know, to give these next wave or new batch of weapons to Israel as they are bombing and killing Palestinians at the same time that people's benefits are being cut. And I wanted to say one other thing, because tomorrow we can't forget on May 19th, McDonald's workers are going on strike. And also there's going to be rallies around the country in support of $15 an hour to support that call for the minimum wage to be raised in this country. So all these things are happening at the same time. And I think that the politicians are just kind of clueless, really, about the fact that we can put two and two together, you know, more money for bombs, less money for us, less money for our families, less money for our neighborhoods and our communities. That's so important, Esther. And yes, I agree with you. There's a concerted effort by the media and by the government to try to keep the people of the United States ignorant about the reality of what's going on in Gaza, in the West Bank, in the Middle East, in fact, everywhere around the world. But it's hard to deny the fact for people living in their communities that they are poor and that they don't have health care coverage sufficient, that half of all the bankruptcies in the United States, personal bankruptcies, are because people in the United States, the so-called richest country in the world, country that sends $10 million a day to Israel, they don't have the ability to pay their doctor's bills. I mean, again, we have to make the connection between the class struggle here in the United States, which is, in fact, very real. It's very raging. Unfortunately, it's mainly a one-sided class war where the rich are attacking the poor, the government representing the banks and corporations attacking working people, attacking our unions, attacking the gains that have been made from the civil rights movement. All of those important social and economic reforms that were achieved as a consequence of struggle are on the chopping block. And, you know, I think it's so important that at the demonstrations that are you know, sweeping the country right now. And again, there will be people 
out where we are today in Washington, D.C., all over the country. It's so important to make the connections between U.S. foreign policy, U.S. imperialist foreign policy, which is a class war against the poor elsewhere with the class war being waged against people in the United States. There's another war that we must mention because it's coming to a head, and that's the war against women in the United States. For 40 or 50 years since Roe v. Wade was passed, the right wing has been attacking women's right to control their own bodies, women's right to control their own destiny, women's right to have unfettered access to health care. And right now, it's coming to a head. Nicole, the Supreme Court agreed to take up the abortion case from Mississippi. I believe that the only reason they took this case is they want to do the final denouement for Roe v. Wade to strip women of the right to control their own bodies. Unfortunately, Brian, that's what all the signs are pointing to at this point. So this was a law in Mississippi that the very right-wing Mississippi legislator made that banned abortions after an estimated 15 weeks of pregnancy with narrow exceptions for medical emergencies or, quote, a severe fetal abnormality. And I'm giving you all those details because this has been very carefully calculated over many years. Lots of very right-wing anti-women, anti-worker organizations, you know, corporate-funded, very wealthy organizations have really strove to put in place as many of these right-wing bills as possible and to make them more and more and more stringent, banning abortions up to six weeks of pregnancy in some states and in lots of iterations such that, you know, of course, all of these bills, anything banning an abortion before 23 or 24 weeks, which is when it's said that fetuses could sustain life outside of the womb, any bill banning abortions before that point is absolutely unconstitutional, according to Roe v. Wade. So as soon as those laws are put into place in these right-wing states, someone, some organization, some abortion clinic, someone will sue to prevent that bill from going into effect. And then we've seen, you know, all over the country, these lawsuits get moved up the court system to the Court of Appeals, to the, you know, federal court system. And time and time again, the Supreme Court has seen these bills, has seen these cases, and has declined to take them up. And, you know, for the most part, it's sort of interpreted as, well, Roe v. Wade has really settled the debate. Roe v. Wade says people are allowed to have abortions and states cannot restrict abortions, again, until fetuses can sustain life outside of the womb at 23 to 24 weeks. So the fact that the Supreme Court is taking this up now, again, it's so clearly unconstitutional you know, the only reason that they would take it up that I can imagine is that they want to do away really with a lot of the protections in Roe v. Wade. And again, this is not just Brian and I just kind of saying this. The federal judge in 2018 who ruled this Mississippi law that's in question unconstitutional wrote in his opinion, quote, the state chose to pass a law it knew was unconstitutional to endorse a decades-long campaign fueled by national interest groups to ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. This court follows the commands of the Supreme Court and the dictates of the United States Constitution rather than the disingenuous calculations of the Mississippi legislature, unquote. You know, so this is fairly widely understood at this point that this is what is happening. I think it is very clear that women and people of conscience, men, people around the country are going to have to stand up and push back and really fight for these rights that all of us need, that all families need to have these rights. These are you know, women's basic rights to their own body, to their own bodily functions, um, and to their futures. So just to be super clear, the issue that the justices have agreed to talk about and then issue a ruling on is, quote, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So in non-legalese, essentially, they're going to decide on whether there are some or any limitations on women's rights that the Supreme Court will actually allow. And they've accepted this case for their next term, which starts in October. So we should see a ruling on this in the spring or early summer of next year. But again, you know, the Supreme Court pretends to be or is supposed to be this, you know, very apolitical body that sits above the rest of us and knows best and, you know, is based purely and only on precisely what laws exist in the land. But I think it's really important to remember that during the uprising against racism, this huge rebellion against racism over the past year, 
even this newly very conservative, extra conservative Supreme Court issued some really, really progressive and positive rulings. And it seemed very clear that it was because people were in the streets. So I think, you know, this is just yet another reason that people are going to have to stay in the streets and come out and mobilize and and essentially show that we're not going to stand for these kinds of human rights abuses. There are restrictions on abortions in so many states, big parts of the country, working class women, poor women really have little to no access to abortion right now. I mean, this is because all of these statewide restrictions, the, the Supreme Court in 2007 upheld the first ever federal law banning abortion procedures and gave politicians the green light to interfere in women's reproductive health care decisions. I'm reading from Planned Parenthood. The federal abortion ban criminalizes abortions in the second trimester of pregnancy that doctors say are often the safest and best way to protect a pregnant woman's health. What we've seen is that for the last 50 years, the right wing has gone step by step, you know, chipping away at basic fundamental rights of women. And during that time, the movement, the women's movement in particular, and the mainstream women's movement has you know, reduce the question of abortion to, you know, the slogan is the right of choice, the right of a woman to choose. Now, that's perfectly good slogan, but it's a defensive slogan because it's not like a woman's right to have an abortion. It's like abortion was actually a bad word. And so you try to get around the bad words by using other language. It's kind of like, when socialists in the 1950s only called themselves progressive instead of socialist because the anti-socialist hysteria was so fierce. Well, here there's a right-wing hysteria against abortion rights and parts of the movement adjusted and said, this is about choice. This is about reproductive justice. This is about women's right to healthcare. All of those are true and good points. But abortion itself has been demonized, completely demonized, and public opinion has, in fact, shifted on abortion. And more people, especially younger people, especially in certain areas, think of abortion as something terrible. And as a consequence, the way it's presented is women have the right to choose something terrible. And I think, and Esther, I'll get your opinion on this, not only do people have to stay in the streets, the progressive women's movement, the women's movement, plus the movement of all men, of all non-binary people, all people who care about justice have to escalate the struggle right now because this is really about the actual right to an abortion and the right to have women have complete self-determination over their own bodies. Absolutely. And as you and Nicole were speaking, I was thinking about how Again, you know, what you're saying is so important is also the language, you know, how they've demonized the word abortion or the act of the abortion. But they've also, you know, coined these phrases like they're pro-life, but they're not pro-life, right? They want to restrict a woman's ability to choose whether to have a child, to bring a child in this world, but they're not pro-life when it comes to making sure that child has enough food, clean water, a safe environment, you know, child care for the child, as we've talked about on the show. So these people aren't pro-life, you know, they want to send our sons and daughters into wars, bring them back, you know, maimed and mangled or killed. And so these people aren't pro-life, but they've been able to use this language in this whole issue around abortion in a way that's been very effective for them. But despite that, most Americans, according to the recent polls I've seen, want Roe v. Wade to be upheld, right? And the other piece of this that I thought about when you were talking is this, that the American birth rate is falling. And so this whole issue of abortion really gets tied up into the whole right wing's obsession about, you know, black and brown people becoming the majority in this country. They've been able to use religion and the really, I forgot the word that Reverend Hagler uses, these people who call themselves Christians, right? And they've been able to be folded into this right wing camp supporting Trump. And they are behind a lot of this push to oppose abortion rights when they should not allow religion and faith and their faith in God to be used to control other people's bodies. 
we're talking about a war, the war waged by the ruling class against uh, people abroad, against workers, low-wage workers, and the unemployed, the war waged against women and women's rights. There's also the ongoing nonstop war against Black America, Esther. I don't know, did you see that article? Again, the kind of language employed by the New York Times is so insipid, especially in the headline writing, but the story itself is so damning. The headline is, How a Genetic Trait in Black People Can Give the Police Cover. And then the subtitle, Sickle Cell Trait Has Been Cited in Dozens of Police Custody Deaths ruled accidental or natural, even though the condition is benign on its own, a Times investigation found. Sometimes can give police cover. No, this is truly diabolical. Absolutely. And while it's horrific and it's there in this report, in this article, it's also something that we've seen, right, in George Floyd's case and and in other cases, in the murder of Eric Garner, how they'll say that George Floyd had a sickle cell trait, right? Or Eric Garner was overweight and he had a heart problem and that's why he died. So on Saturday, the piece that you're talking about, the New York Times published the results of an investigation into how medical examiners that work very closely with police and prosecutors have been using the fact that black people are prone to carry the trait for sickle cell anemia as a cause of death in dozens of cases when people died in police custody. So the Times found at least 47 instances over the past 25 years in which medical examiners, law enforcement officials, or lawyers for accused cops pointed to the trait as a cause or major factor in the deaths of black people in custody. They said that 15 such deaths have occurred since 2015 and that 19 of these cases involve black people who died after being restrained in ways that could hinder breathing, you know, like we saw in George Floyd's case. And 12 deaths occurred after the police or sheriff's deputies used stun guns. Nine happened after they used pepper spray and two followed bites from police dogs. Five of the cases were initially ruled homicide, but these determinations about sickle cell trait are often created enough doubt, right, for officers to avert criminal or civil penalties. So the story starts with this really chilling account of 32-year-old Lamont Perry being chased into the woods in Wadesboro, North Carolina in 2016. The article says, quote, accused of violating probation in a misdemeanor assault case, Mr. Perry was chased by parole and local police officers through the dark into a stand of trees where only they could witness what happened next. He had swelling of the brain and a forensic investigator reported that he had an open fracture of his right leg. He was covered in dirt and residents of a nearby housing complex told his family that when the officers emerged from the woods, their shoes and the bottoms of their pants were splattered in blood, end quote. But none of that really horrific description was really reflected by a state medical examiner who said Lamont Perry died by accident and attributed his death in large part to sickle cell trait. His family has never believed that story and that official account of his death, and they were not allowed to see his body and did not have the resources for their own independent investigation after his death. So this story You know, it reminds me that most family members of those who die in police custody do not have these kinds of resources. Most working families do not have these kind of resources to go basically against the state and to basically investigate the police, you know, call the police on the police like, you know, we've seen happen in George Floyd's case. And so this kind of medical determination can cover murders by police, just like the cover of Sandra Bland and so many other black and brown people supposedly committing suicide in jail cells, right? There are all these different covers for the police. And so the defense tried to include sickle cell trait as a reason for George Floyd's death. And you might remember we discussed on another show how the medical expert, Dr. David Fowler, who testified for Derek Chauvin, was the medical examiner in Maryland for several years. And now the state attorney general there is taking a look at cases, you know, where the findings of Fowler's office exonerated police of any wrongdoing. And that's something that's happening here locally related to how coroners, medical examiners do their jobs and how what they find can cover the police for committing murder. Yeah, very, very, very important 
you know, there's so much pressure on medical examiners and coroners to go along with the police account. And I was mentioning to a few of you yesterday, actually, that when the Attica prisoner rebellion that took place 50 years ago in September 1971, Nelson Rockefeller ordered the state troopers to retake the prison in day four of the rebellion. And they came in and they just started shooting everybody and scores of people were massacred and a bunch of prison guards were killed. And the media immediately put out that the guards died because the prisoners had slit the throat of their hostages, the guards who had been taken hostage in the early part of the rebellion. None of that was true. That was not true at all. But that was the story. And when the medical examiner came out a day or two later and said, no, in fact, all of the guard hostages were shot by state troopers, the whole narrative shifted. Instead of completely demonizing the prisoners, people then understood what actually happened. It was a full-scale massacre at Attica Prison in upstate New York. But that medical examiner, while he survived for a while in his position, his life became harder and harder and harder because the police and different law enforcement agencies in New York State basically just decided to destroy him. And so when people read a news account and say, well, the medical examiner said this, or the coroner said this, don't assume that that's an independent objective position because those individuals who are the medical examiners normally work hand in glove with the cops. And if they go against the police, they're going to pay for it. Anyway, it's a really important part of the whole system of criminal injustice. Yeah. And I just wanted to add that it's so important to highlight these cases, no matter if the New York Times writes it in the passive voice, but it's important to keep bringing out these types of facts and these factual reports, because what I hear from the right wing and the right wing media is that they continue to voice lies about Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement of last year of 2020, the uprising against racism. And They consistently try to deny the reality of these types of murders and the type of brutality that the Black community is experiencing. And when you have movements like Blue Lives Matter, when you have the Fraternal Order of Police being very powerful in cities and municipalities all across the country, we have to keep bringing out these facts and facts like presented by the International Inquiry Commission that we reported on a couple weeks ago, because we have to stick to the facts because these people are sticking to anti-Black propaganda, uh, racist propaganda, and sticking to it very vocally. We do have to keep lifting up these facts because we have a world of alternative facts out there that is continuing to demonize uh, Black people. You know, before we turn to our last story, which we're going to talk about really important elections briefly, we're going to talk about them in Chile. Nicole, we talked earlier about the Supreme Court decision and the war being waged against different parts of the U.S. population by the ruling class. Did you notice that when the Supreme Court ruled in April that to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, the jury must be unanimous because a couple states have non-unanimous jury deliberations. And so the person whose case came to the Supreme Court was going to be, you know, he was sentenced to life in prison by a non-unanimous jury decision. He's going to have a new trial. But the Supreme Court decided also not to make their decision retroactive. So they ruled it's unconstitutional to have a jury conviction by less than a unanimous jury going forward. But for people who are in prison in Oregon, and I think it's one or two other states who were found guilty and sentenced to prison by non-unanimous juries, by a majority, that they don't get any justice. I mean, how does that make any sense? Well, it doesn't. I mean, it you know, the reason they're saying is it makes sense in the like logistical machinations of the state. They're like, well, we don't have time for all these new trials. And it's like, well, these are people's lives. I mean, in Louisiana and Oregon, these are the states that didn't require unanimous juries to send people away to prison, to take away people's freedom, to take away their liberty, to put them in cages. I mean, to subject them to, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to a human being. They didn't even require a unanimous jury. You know, this is just one of the most basic things. And the Supreme Court said, 
okay, well, you know, it's 2020, 2021. Now we're going to require them. But, you know, nobody in the past, which is a lot of people who have been locked up without everybody who hears the evidence, without everyone even agreeing on the fact that they are guilty beyond the, you know, reasonable doubt. It's completely disgusting. And it's completely, again, it's using this like logistical excuse when in reality, what's happening is the state wants people to be locked up. The state doesn't care whether people's lives are completely wasted and people are just sitting in prison wasting away when in fact the evidence that was there may not have even really shown that they did the thing they were accused of in the first place. Yeah, and not to allow people who were found guilty by what the Supreme Court now deems to be an unconstitutional procedure, a jury conviction by a less than unanimous group, they don't have any recourse now. The Supreme Court just said, no, we're not going to do it. It reminds me I keep trying to go to the last story, but I want to just stay on this for a moment. It reminds me of that other story that came out earlier in May, a couple of weeks ago, and I shared it with all of you about this man who was executed, and he was executed four years ago, and he had always maintained his innocence. And the Innocence Project has continued with his case, even though he was murdered. He was murdered by the state, he was executed. And they have this amazing revelation that additional DNA testing before Liddell Lee was executed, which had been denied, now proves that the DNA found on the weapon and on the murder victim belonged to another person. The headline of the article is, four years after an execution, a different man's DNA is found on the murder weapon. Lawyers request to conduct additional DNA testing. And then I want to read a couple of sentences to you. For 22 years, Liddell Lee maintained that he had been wrongly convicted of murder. Quote, my dying words will always be as it has been. I am an innocent man. Close quote. He told the BBC in an interview published on April 19, 2017, the day before officials in Arkansas administered the lethal injection. Four years later, lawyers affiliated with the Innocence Project say the DNA testing has revealed the genetic material on the murder weapon, which was never previously tested, in fact belongs to another man. In a highly unusual development for a case in which a person has already been convicted and executed, the new genetic profile has been uploaded to a national criminal database in an attempt to identify the mystery man. Now, Liddell Lee brought his case you know, Arkansas hadn't executed anybody for 10 years. They decided to execute him and speed up executions because they were running out of the chemicals needed to carry out lethal injections. So they wanted to step on the gas, so to speak. And he brought his case, his last appeal to a federal district court judge. And the judge said, no, this has just gone on too long. So he denied Liddell Lee's application to have other evidence brought before a court so that he could be possibly exonerated. I mean, I don't know, Esther, I mean, who are these judges? Who are these individuals or the Supreme Court say, well, yeah, it's unjust that you're going to be executed and maybe so, maybe you're innocent, but look, we just have to keep moving here. Well, also South Carolina, by the way, is set to legalize death by firing squad just because they're running out of those particular chemicals. I mean, it's just disgusting. Right. Well, who these people are, they're the same people who, like the coroners, who are intentionally botching these investigations or these studies into cause of death. You know, this whole, as you said, criminal injustice system is not designed for justice. You know, it's designed in many of these cases, the prosecutors are looking after their careers. They're trying to get convictions. It doesn't matter if the person's guilty or not. It doesn't matter if justice is really being served. So I'm not sure how we can do it. I just was listening to one of the people assaulted by those anonymous robocops in Portland last year. This was the Navy veteran, the white man. It received some attention because, you know, he was a white man who was a veteran being assaulted by these police He was interviewed over the weekend and I heard him talk about how basically the policing system needs to be scrapped altogether and rebuilt. 
everyone knows this, but it's almost like, you know, this country born of violence has created this monster of this policing system, which I think we said if it was put all together, all 18,000 police departments, it would be like the what? Largest employer in the country. Right. Okay. So people don't know what to do. Even people who advocate abolition, you know, how do you rebuild this corrupt, broken system of armed men, you know, who have been trained in ways to uh, police and really brutalize the population, to surveil the population, who have access to all kinds of equipment, weapons, surveillance tools. And how do we, as the citizens who pay their salaries with our tax dollars, have community control of the police? You know, and when people talked about defunding the police, there's also the call for community control of the police. And so all the things that you're talking about is a part of that system. You know, we need to have community control over what is called the criminal justice system. Brian, one in 25 people on death row are probably innocent. That's a study according to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that was in that journal. One in 25 are innocent. Well, Esther, you raised the question, how are we going to get there? And of course, the solution is revolution. And because, you know, when you think about 790,000, that's the number, 800,000, 800,000 uniformed police officers around the country, people can talk about abolition, which is fine. I'm for abolishing this current police system too. But, you know, in the words of other revolutionaries who came before in an unreformable system. If the state is unreformable, the state has to be smashed, meaning it has to be replaced by a different kind of apparatus, one that's premised on the needs of people, the needs of workers, the needs of the black community, the needs of women, the needs of poor people generally. And the current state is just, it's not compatible with that. Its task is to defend property, to use violence routinely in defense of a system that's based on maximizing profit and to guarantee the rights of the already rich. That's why the left has to really take this seriously. Like abolition requires revolutionary transformation. And how do you get there? And, you know, whenever people talk about revolution in a society when it seems like the oppression is too great, the ruling class is too strong. The armed forces of the system are too vast. It always seems impossible. And then during and throughout history, revolutions do happen. They do happen and they create profound change. And then after the fact, people looking back in history say, well, we knew that would happen because the need for revolution was so great. But beforehand, it seems impossible. Afterwards, it seemed to be an inevitable phenomena. When we talk about revolution and the socialist program, we don't know exactly how or when, but we do know that the profound needs and the unsolvable problems in society and the crises, the multiple cascading crises in society, which are growing, including the environmental crisis, these pose uh, situations that, if unsolved by the existing ruling class, lead people to revolutionary conclusions. Not all at once, not quickly, but that's what happens. And talking about revolution and talking about something, I don't know, more optimistic, let's talk about Chile. In 1970, Walter, Salvador Allende led a united front of communist and socialist forces, got 80% of the votes of working class people, became an elected socialist government. And Allende said at that time, unlike Cuba, unlike Vietnam, unlike China or the Soviet Union, we're going to have a peaceful transfer to socialism. We're going to legislate it in step by step. But Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and the generals in Chile said, no, you're not. And they carried out the coup or counter-revolutionary coup d'etat on September 11th, 1973. Tens of thousands of Chileans were killed. The left was banned, but the left in Chile is back. Let's talk about the new elections. Yeah, well, it's nice to have some good news to discuss for once. And that regime, that military regime led by the dictator Pinochet, imposed a constitution on the country in 1980, a horrible anti-working class, anti-democratic constitution. 
But the assembly that was elected in Chile over the weekend is going to rewrite that constitution, is going to write a new constitution for the country. And the bottom line takeaway from last weekend's election is that the left won. The whole reason that there's a constituent assembly in the first place in Chile is because in October of 2019, an enormous uprising broke out in the country against the rising cost of living, against all of the anti-working class policies of the government, all of the anti-working class institutions in the country, like the privatized pension funds. And then subsequent mass movements, mass waves of protests have followed since then. But the right-wing government of the country, led by Sebastian Piñera, whose family was huge in the Pinochet fascist regime, he was forced to grant this concession, allow a constituent assembly to be formed, to be elected, because of this historic uprising rebellion of the Chilean people. I think it's a great example for other people to follow. So it was clear that the left was going to do very well. But the big question was, will the right-wing parties get at least one-third of the seats in the Constituent Assembly? Because to pass new measures for the Constitution, to pass provisions for the new Constitution, you need a two-thirds majority vote. And it looks like the answer, I mean, there's a little bit of ambiguity because a lot of independents were elected, but it looks like the answer is no, they did not get a third of the seats. And so that means the uh, left-wing parties, the socialists, the communists, coupled with the center-left parties, who are actually significantly smaller than the true left, they will have a two-thirds majority. So the people who are elected, I mean, it was the communist party, members of this left-wing coalition called the Broad Front There were a number of seats, 17 seats in the Constituent Assembly reserved for representatives of the indigenous peoples of Chile. And one of the people elected for those indigenous seats is a very prominent former political prisoner of the people who are fighting against the Chilean state and corporations' uh, displacement of indigenous peoples and corporations' theft of their land and resources. There were lists of independent candidates representing the major social movements, you know, the labor movement, the women's liberation struggle, the students' movement. This is, you know, really a constituent assembly where people who have the interests of the working class at heart are firmly in the majority. So, of course, a lot of things can happen between now and when a new constitution is approved, but it looks very good as a consequence of this weekend's elections. Now, one other important thing to note about the election is that turnout was actually extremely low. It was remarkably low, uh, about 39%, I think. Now, turnout is usually pretty low in Chile, especially among working class voters who are by and large disillusioned with the electoral process and with politicians. But when the referendum was held to establish the Constituent Assembly in the first place less than a year ago, I think it was about 55% of voters turned out to participate in that election. So close to a third of people who voted to establish the Constituent Assembly in the first place ended up not turning out for the actual election. And so you got to ask the question, why? Well, I think a major part of it was that the campaigning process was essentially sabotaged by the right-wing government of Chile. The restrictions on campaigning, allegedly ostensibly on the basis of coronavirus prevention, but everyone kind of knew that that was fake, prevented the Chilean people from getting to know a lot of the new independent lists that were set up, and also the procedures for how the Constituent Assembly would be elected were also made quite complicated. Walter, that's very important news that the Chilean working class and left movement has come back. It's strong that this election is the result, really, of a popular uprising in the streets. Again, this is one of the articles that people can read at Liberation News. We've been having our regular segment about the articles in Liberation News newsletter. What else is on the plate there? Yeah, as always, I want to encourage people to go to liberationnews.org, sign up for our newsletter. You'll see the link at the top in the center of the homepage. 
you can find a report from many of the extremely impressive large demonstrations in solidarity with Palestine. It's titled Nakba 73, Actions in 75 Plus U.S. Cities Remember the Palestinian Catastrophe of 1948. We've got a lot of photos, a lot of reports from many, many different cities there. And I also want to encourage people to check out the book Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. It's written by Richard Becker. It's an extremely helpful introduction to the Palestinian struggle, the Israeli colonial project. And it is available free as an ebook, uh, but only until May 19th, only until tomorrow. So go to liberationnews.org. You'll see the link on the homepage where you can go check it out and get that free ebook. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Esther and Nicole. Nicole, again, we have to encourage our listeners. We know a lot of people like the show, rely on the show. We need more of those people to become patrons. We have an upcoming webinar next week, right? Yep. Next Wednesday, May 26th, it'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern. So go on to patreon.com slash the socialist program, subscribe to one of our tiers that are listed. And for not very much money, just $5 a month or more, come and join us. You can ask Brian questions beforehand or live on the seminar And we've been going through and posting the past seminars. So that'll be coming up. I'm sure we'll be talking about Palestine, answering a lot of questions and, you know, discussing what's going on there in further detail. So I really encourage people to join us next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Right. And, you know, we use the phrase, we can do this show with you, but not without you. At a certain point, it starts to sound a little bit like a cliche. But the reality is that we can't do this show without the support of our listeners. We have no corporate backing, no institutional backing, no support from the banks, no support from the Democratic or Republican Party. We are an independent socialist program. If you're a listener and you like the show, do your part and help out. We have a really great week coming up tomorrow. We're going to be talking again to Richard Wolf, esteemed socialist economist. We're going to be exploring different Marxist categories. On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the dialectic as it applies to imperialism and imperialist overreach. And we have a great discussion on Thursday with Dr. Gerald Horn, historian, scholar, and prolific author. So stay with The Socialist Program the rest of this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.